But this passage in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it comes on the heels of Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus. You remember last week from the beginning of chapter 19 that Jesus is in the city of Jericho, that he meets Zacchaeus on the road, he goes into the home of Zacchaeus, and we witnessed in the heart of Zacchaeus the evidence of a changed heart. Zacchaeus says to Jesus, I give half of everything I have to the poor, and I will restore fourfold everything I've defrauded. And on the heels of that, it says in verse 11 that immediately following that, Jesus delivers this parable. And it seems that whether he's still in the home of Zacchaeus or in the front lawn of Zacchaeus or out in the streets of Jericho, these events, this parable that he delivers comes on the very tail end of the events that have just happened in the home of Zacchaeus. And we have this great clarification in the 11th verse. I love when we read a parable and we get some information about why we have the parable. So verse 11 clarifies for us the reason that Jesus delivers this parable. And what is the reason? Well, the reason is very simple. Jesus looks around him and he sees in Zacchaeus and he sees in the crowds and he sees in his own disciples a misunderstanding about the coming kingdom of God, okay? And it's not a new misunderstanding. It's one that he has spoken to many times. The passage says in verse 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so Jesus delivers this parable because they're in the shadows of Jerusalem and because the people around him all assumed that the kingdom of God was to come immediately. And although he has spoken about this often, the people still don't get it. And so Jesus will deliver to them a parable that will answer questions about the kingdom, that will clarify for them the nature of the king and of his coming. So I've outlined the sermon in your bulletin. It's very simple. We'll look at the three categories of people in this parable, beginning with the nobleman. We'll spend only a brief time on the nobleman, a fairly longer time on the enemies of the nobleman, and then finally we'll spend most of our time this morning talking about the servants of the nobleman. So first of all, this nobleman, he's brought up in verse 12. It says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. Now the nobleman in this parable is a depiction of Jesus himself. Okay, I'll save you any suspense. It is a portrait of Jesus. And there's a number of good indicators by which we know that, first of all, in most of the parables, when Jesus speaks of a king or a prince or of a nobleman, he often refers to himself or to God his Father. In this passage, the people in the parable, they call him Lord at least twice. That's a good indication. In Matthew chapter 25, which is the sort of correlative passage, it's the parable of the ten talents, they call the, the nobleman, they call him the master. And all along the way through the parable, we see the flow of the parable indicates to us that this is indeed Jesus. Now as he delivers the parable, you can see very quickly that he intends to deal with the subject of his ascension and then the long period of waiting till his return. 
He often speaks about this in different parables, but you can see it here described. As Luke records it, he says that a nobleman went into a far country, and then sometime later he would return. In Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten talents, Matthew says that the nobleman went and he went away for a long time. That's a better way of describing it. The parable of the bridegroom that comes just before this in Matthew's gospel, it says that the bridegroom delayed for a long time. The bridegroom delayed. It is Jesus' intention to deal with the period of time between his ascension and his return. And you remember, we, we spoke about this a number of weeks ago. In Luke chapter 17, you remember I drew the two circles, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and how those circles overlapped. And there's a question of what is happening during the period where, yeah, the kingdom of this world still exists, but the kingdom of our God has come, but it hasn't been fully realized. It's the period of 2,000 plus years that we're all living in right now. Jesus tells this parable of a nobleman who went on a long journey to begin to explain to us what is the purpose and what is happening during that period of time. The king has come, but he goes away on a long journey. He delays for a long time. And Jesus begins to explain this to us in the course of this parable. So that's the nobleman. And as he explains this parable, he gives to us two categories of people. You, you saw them in the parable. There are the enemies of the nobleman and there are the servants of the nobleman. First, I want to begin with the enemies of the nobleman. Now, they're only mentioned in this parable in two different verses. You probably saw them. They came up in verse 14. It says, but his citizens hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay? That's where we're introduced to the enemies of the nobleman. And then some time passes. The nobleman goes away. He interacts with the servants. And then finally the enemies are mentioned again in the very last verse. And the very last verse says, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And things just got real serious really quick, right? There's a heightened level of intensity and urgency at the end of this parable as Jesus speaks about these enemies of the nobleman. As you think about these enemies brought up in this parable, let me tell you that the portrait here of these enemies is a portrait of all of humanity, okay? And there's a number of good reasons we ought to know that. First of all, Jesus uses the word citizens to describe them. It's an interesting word to use, that they are citizens, okay? He doesn't describe them as enemies coming from outside the kingdom, uh, those who are trying to unnecessarily attack or overthrow the kingdom. They are citizens, and so in that way, they share something in common with the nobleman, with the king. They have a common identity with him. They're members of his kingdom. You could say they are members of his family, okay? And yet, they are contrasted in this parable to the servants. They're not like the servants, are they? Because these citizens, they say in verse 14, as they're speaking to the nobleman, we do not want this man to reign over us, okay? They want nothing to do with his kingship. Though they share a common identity with him, though they be of his kingdom, though they be a member of his family, their message from the outset is very clear. We want nothing to do with your kingship. We don't want your authority over us. We don't want to be in submission to you. 
as I mentioned earlier, this is a, a picture of all of humanity, okay? Though humanity being created in the likeness of God, sharing His image, having many of the very same characteristics of God, did not want the authority of God over them, did not want to be in submission to Him, and humanity essentially says to God, we do not want you to reign over us, okay? Now, uh, this is, a, again, it's a depiction of humanity, and listen to how Jeremiah Burroughs, he's a Puritan pastor, listen to how he describes this 350 years ago. He describes humanity and all of us, he describes it like this. He says, you have gone on in all of your life thus far, ever since you were born in a continual opposition to God Himself unto the infinite Lord, the eternal first being of all the world. Your life has been nothing but enmity to this God. You have directly opposed and strived against and resisted Him as ever a man did oppose and resist and strive with any other man. And this you have done in the whole course of your life. Certainly there is more in this to humble a man than anything that can be spoken to show him the evil of his sin. See, that's a, a depiction of, of the heart of humanity that though being in the, in the uh, very image of God created, says to God, we desire that you not rule over us. We want our autonomy. We want to rule over ourselves. And so this parable gives us a portrait of humanity, the human heart that desires not the kingship of God, but the autonomous kingship of my own heart. And yet, as sobering is the reality, the depiction of the enemies of God here in this parable, there's a wonderful truth that is brought out by this parable, okay? Because as you consider the enemies of God in this parable, it is interesting how the king delays long over their judgment. Did you consider that? Did you, as you read this parable, did you consider how the people are in rebellion to the king even before he leaves on the long journey? Think about it. It says that he's going to go away on this long journey. But his citizens, as he's going, they send a delegation to him and they say, we, we desire to not have this kingship, this authority over us. We don't want you to be our king. One of the most astonishing things about this parable is that the king doesn't do what the king ought to do at that moment, right? To squash the rebellion, right? The, the people in his kingdom are saying to him as he leaves, you're not our king. And yet what does he do? He goes on a long journey and he allows these citizens to continue enjoying his kingdom. Isn't that interesting, okay? You see, one of the many reasons that Jesus goes and he delays for a time is for the sake of his enemies, okay? And isn't that a, a beautiful truth? He delays for the sake of his enemies. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, Peter says as he's speaking to the saints that he's writing to, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, right? And what does he mean? Well, we're expecting Jesus to return and to bring redemption and to bring reconciliation and to right all wrongs. Why is he delaying? Is Jesus being slow? Peter says Jesus is not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, within this parable, 
One of the truths concerning the enemies of God that is brought out is that the, the master, the nobleman, the king, he goes on this long journey. He doesn't bring judgment that is deserved for the enemies of God. He delays long in his journey that they might sit there and might reflect and might think and might say, whoa, what utter foolishness this is. What utter foolishness it is to rebel against the king and that they might be moved by God's grace in repentance to say we were absolutely out of our minds. And as a matter of fact, we want you to be our king. So that's one of the truths that is brought out by this parable. Jesus goes away that all might come in repentance to Him and be received by Him who delays long over. And yet that's not the primary thrust of this parable. You see, the, the wicked enemies, the citizens of the noblemen, they're they're kind of just a, a side story of this parable. The primary concern in this parable is with the servants. And as there is an accountability with the enemies of God, there is also an accountability with the servants of the noblemen who are mentioned in this parable. And the servants in this parable, there's a depiction of you and I, okay, these are the ones who are not just citizens, who not just share something in common with the king. They're, they're the ones in the parable who are brought into submission to the king. They're the ones who are serving him. And they are described in a very different way in this parable. Now consider what is said of the servants in this parable, okay? Beginning in verse 12, the nobleman says, listen guys, I'm going away. And I'm going to be away for a long time. And while I'm away, I want to entrust my possessions to you. I'm going to take what I have, and I'm going to invest it in you. And I expect each one of you to do business. That's what it says here, uh, that they would engage in business in verse 12. Engage in business until I come again. Now, if you're wondering, well, what does that mean? The NIV translates it a little bit differently, and I think a little bit more helpful. The NIV says, put this money to work, Okay. Put this money to work until I return again. The nobleman says to the servants, here are my possessions. I'm investing in you. Put this to work until I return again. Now, he gives them one mina each. So we've got ten servants, ten minas, one to each, okay? And if you were to look up a mina and you were trying to figure out, well, what's a mina worth? You'll find ten different opinions on how much a mina is worth, but everybody agrees it's fairly valuable, Okay? I think there's somewhere, some people say it's a year's wages, some people say it's a quarter year or a half year, say in the ballpark of a significant amount of money, all right? The nobleman comes and he invests this money in each of the servants and he says to them, go and do business, go and put this to work, make it to be profitable, I want to return when I come home. Yeah, he's essentially saying to them, you are now my certified financial planner, okay? Each of you make more, okay, be profitable. And then the nobleman returns from his long journey, and we have the beginning of an accounting, don't we? And we don't get an accounting for all ten, and that's okay, this is a parable. Nobody knows what happened to the other seven, and that's okay, they're not real. But we, we do get insight into three of the servants, and, and what are we told about them, okay? Well, the first servant, he comes before the, the, the master, and he says to him, Lord, your minas have made 
10 more. Okay, I want you to save that phrase in your mind. That's an important phrase. Lord, your minus have made 10 more. So essentially, the, the one has now become 10. That's a pretty big deal. And the master says to him, well done. Well done, you good servant. Gives him a little pat on the back. You will be over 10 cities. You have done well. The second comes, and he says, Lord, your mina has made five more. And the master says the same thing. Well done, good servant. You have done well. You will be over five cities. Well done. Then we get the third servant, right? And you get the idea, the impression, the ser third servant doesn't get it, okay? He's not on board, okay? He, he, for whatever reason, hasn't figured out the purpose of the investment that the master has made. And what happens with the third servant? Well, the third servant says, listen, okay, I took your mina and what did I do? I hid it in a handkerchief. And you might be thinking, I, I thought he buried that. That's the, that's the 10 talents from Matthew 25. Slightly different, right? Okay, but here he hides in a handkerchief. In Matthew 25, he digs a hole and he buries it. But he says, listen, I took your mina, I put it in a handkerchief, and now that you're back, here's your, here's your mina. In, in Matthew 25, as the third servant is speaking to the master, he says it slightly differently, but it really emphasizes the point, I think. He says to the servant, here, your mina, take it. It's yours, okay? Almost like begrudgingly, here's what you gave me, and I'm just giving it back to you. I want nothing to do with your mina, all right? And why does the servant say that he hid the mina in the handkerchief? Well, look at verse 21. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Okay? Now, as you read that, understand the nature of parables. This is not a parable that's saying, well, does Jesus reap what he did not sow? Does he take what he does not harvest? I mean, how does that work? This is not what's being portrayed in this parable. We do get a depiction of a servant who really doesn't get the master, okay? The confusion is in the heart and the mind of the servant. It's not in, in the nobleman, all right? The whole parable tells us of a good and generous nobleman. It is this servant who misunderstands him. And because he misunderstands him, he does poorly with the investment that the master has made in his life, Okay? Now, that's the parable as it unfolds. Let me tell you then what are some of the implications for us. There are a number of them. So let me just give you three briefly, okay? First of all, the first implication of this parable is that we own nothing and God owns everything, okay? You can write that down. You may say, well, that's, that's pretty emphatic. That's what we see in this parable. It's what we see in the entirety of Scripture, okay? And as I said, it's brought out in the words of the two faithful servants. What do they say? They don't say, Lord, you gave me a mina and I did pretty good and I made a lot of profit with it. They say, Lord, your mina has made ten more. Isn't that interesting? Okay. A heart, a heart of humility. They say to the Lord, to the master, listen, it was yours. Okay. You gave it. It was profitable. It came from you. It was made by you and it is now for you. It is yours. Lord, your mina made ten more. And the second says, Lord, your mina made five more, okay? And listen, these guys are servants. We know that the, by the very nature of a servant, they have nothing of their own, okay? It doesn't say that they took some of their own investments and they took some of the master's and they made really good profit on both of them. It says they were given a mina by the master. Every good thing they have comes from the master. Every profit they make is the master's and they recognize that in this parable. 
and it is a deep, important truth that is depicted in all of Scripture that cannot be overstated how significant it is for our lives. We own nothing. God owns everything, okay? That's what people have often called stewardship. And I know we say the word. We don't often recognize what it means. Stewardship is we are managing the possessions of another. And that is one of the messages that clearly comes out in this parable. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we live like this, okay? Do we live as if our possessions and our belongings and our families and our homes and our careers and our retirements and everything that we have is not ours, but it's the Lord's, okay? That it is His and that it is for Him, that it is from Him, that it is to Him. Do we live like that? I, I think the answer is no, right? We, if we're going to be challenged this morning, we have to recognize in our own hearts, we, we don't do this, we don't do this well. This is a convicting passage, and it ought to be. For though everything is the Lord's, we live as if it is our own. Think about this, okay? Think about for a second your retirement. What is retirement? It's the thing you work towards for like 40 years, right? And you save your money for it, and you're looking forward to it, and and you're thinking, man, when I get to that day, I'm just going to be able to chill out. I'm going to be on a beach somewhere. I'm not going to have to worry about interacting with other people. This is great. What, What would it mean if you said, this is not my retirement, this is your retirement, Lord? It is yours, it is from you, it is for you, okay? That would be convicting, I think. What would it mean if we said, for instance, the pay raise I got this year, okay? This pay raise, it's not my pay raise, it's the Lord's pay raise. It is His increase. Lord, it is yours, how will you use it? Pretty convicting. My family, my house, right? These are yours, Lord. Not just paying homage to God, thank you for this good thing, now I'm going to go do it. Not just paying homage, but recognizing these are not my own, they are the Lord's. Lord, do with them what you wish. You know what? We probably don't pray that often because that's a really scary thing to pray. It's a scary thing to recognize in your own heart. These are not mine, Lord. They are yours. Do with them as you wish. I said this is a, it's a convicting idea. It's a convicting passage. I'll just tell you, I've It's been convicting for me this last week. It's been convicting for me the last five weeks as we've talked about stewardship and our possessions and our things. And it got me to thinking this past week. It's every step of the way it's been convicting. Um, My wife and I, we've got type A personalities, okay? So we're very organized and we're kind of, we can tend to be rigid sometimes. We have structure and we like to keep a nice tidy home and we keep our things clean. And and often uh, that can hinder us from hospitality. And I'll tell you a few examples I, I thought of this past week. When somebody says to me, can I borrow your chainsaw, okay? They said this to me like two weeks ago, and you know what I was thinking? Well, last time you messed up my blade and you brought it back empty, I don't think you can borrow my chainsaw, okay? Somebody asked me about borrowing my leaf blower. I thought, well, that's a pretty new leaf blower, and I don't think you maybe take care of your things the way I would. So you know what? The leaf blower is already being used this weekend, all right? Um, if you've, if you've ever owned a truck, you know how it is with trucks, right? I've owned trucks twice in my life, and about a year into owning them, I sold them because I realized very quickly, if you own a truck, people expect you to help them, right, with your truck, okay? Right? You know if you own trucks. That's what happens with trucks, okay? Every step of the way, it reminds me, if, if I was to think about my things, these are not my things. They're the Lord's things. 
it, I, I'm convicted in my heart every time that I'm inclined to, to say no or to not be generous or not to be hospitable because if we're, if we're seriously convinced in our hearts that everything we have is the Lord's, then you know what? There would be no territorial boundaries for us. We would be generous. We wouldn't worry about our tomorrow because we know that everything we have has been given to us by God, and surely our tomorrow will be taken care of because He will give us what we need for tomorrow. It would radically change the way we live. We'd be forced to live in an entirely different way, okay? Nothing is ours. Everything is the Lord's. Are we asking the question, Lord, what will you do with your possessions, okay? What will you do with your things? Here's the second takeaway from the servants in this passage. The second takeaway is that the, the master calls them to be profitable. He calls them to do something with the possessions, with the things that he's given them. Okay, so it isn't just sort of a, for cosmic amusement that Jesus endows us with things. It's not for cosmic amusement that the master leaves his minas with them. He says, well, just go enjoy it. He calls them to a certain purpose. And in the parable, he says, go and do business. Go and put it to work. Make it to be profitable. Have you ever asked the question, what is the business that Jesus has called us to, right? If he has blessed us with family and he has blessed us with health and he has blessed us with home and he has blessed us with career and pay raises and retirement and whatever other things he's blessed us with, if he has blessed us with that, what is the work that he has called us to? If he has invested these minas into his people, then what does he expect us to do with it? One author in writing uh, on this passage here said this, this is the work of the people of God. These people, the servants, then must conduct themselves in such a manner that through their word and example, sinners are brought to the Lord, believers are strengthened in the faith, they themselves grow in every Christian virtue, and every sphere is brought in subjection to the Lord, to the glory of God, right? That's the work of the servant. That's the work of the follower of Christ. That's why God has given us more than we need. That's why he has invested into his people. You see the work, again, just to simplify here, uh, that sinners are brought to the Lord, believers are strengthened in the faith, they grow in every Christian virtue, and every sphere of life is brought in subjection to the Lord, to the glory of God. If the work that we're engaged in is outside of that purview, there's a, there's a, a pretty good uh, estimation that it is a work of the flesh, Okay? If the work that we're engaged in is inside that purview, then it is to the glory of God, and it is a good thing. It is what God has called us to do. It is why he has invested in his people. But here's the final thought about the servants, okay? And this, to me, is the most significant of this entire parable. The final thought is the graciousness of the master. It's the graciousness of the master. As you're reading the parable, I don't know if you thought about this, but there's a, kind of, uh, there's a kind of odd disproportionality to what the master calls the servants to do, what they do, and then how he rewards them, right? Did you catch that in the parable? Okay, so he invests a mina into each of them, and let's say a mina is very valuable. Maybe it's worth a half of year's wages. He invests a mina, they come back with 10, and then what does he say to them? Well done, good servant. Now I will put you over 10 cities, right? And you're like, wow, okay. That just escalated really quick. 
He blessed them excessively, lavishly for the faithfulness in very small things. And it reveals to us the, the graciousness of the Master. We're, we're not meant to miss this. Uh, Harry Reader, who is a, a pastor in our denomination, when he was preaching on this passage, I think he put it so well, and so I'll just use his words. He says that the privilege and the rewards of the lifestyle of the faithful, focused and productive stewardship, are astonishingly disproportionate to the results of our stewardship. Okay? So astonishingly disproportionate to the results of our stewardship. Let's say the dollar I gave you, you made $10 and you showed me. And then I say to you, wonderful, well done, good and faithful servant. Here, I'm going to give you Birmingham, Huntsville, Chattanooga, Charlotte, Atlanta, Savannah, Montgomery, and Knoxville. It's a good depiction. You can tell where Harry Reader's from. It's a good depiction. Imagine I give you a dollar. You make $10. And I say to you, okay, here, 10 cities, right? 10 cities. It's a big deal. See, this parable most importantly reveals that our God is exceedingly, unfathomably, astonishingly gracious and generous. He has sent His Son to us to die for our sins, and it's part of His design to invest in us, His people, to invest His bounty in us, calling us to labor for Him and desiring to reward us lavishly when we are faithful, even in the very small things. That's what stands out to me about this parable, the desire of the Master to reward the servants abundantly. You see, for this reason, if the stewardship that we've been talking about the last five weeks, if that stewardship is too hard, or it seems like too much to ask, or it seems too boring, or it seems like something you just don't want to be a part of, if that's the way you feel about the biblical stewardship portrayed in this parable, then it's only because you really don't know the Master. Not really. Why would we cling so tightly to a dollar when by giving it up and investing in the kingdom work, we would trade it in for a house, not a house, not a mansion, but for a city? As this parable speaks about. See, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 25, in Matthew's account of the ten talents, the master then says to the servants these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Now enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, that's what awaits the servants of the Lord. That's the reward. That's the great prize. That's the blessing that is astonishingly exceeding of any value, of any worth, of anything we may see in this world. Enter into the joy of your master. Doesn't it just get you excited to be fruitful for the sake of the kingdom of God, knowing the reward that awaits us? Because of our Savior, Christ Jesus. It certainly gets me excited. Servants of God, enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we ask our Lord and our God 
that you would apply these words to our hearts, that you would work by your Spirit to convict us of our need, and that you, our Lord and our God, would make us able and willing to glorify you, you who have saved us, you who have redeemed us, and now you who have invested in your people the great bounty and resources of your hand that we would faithfully serve you all the days of our life. Lord, help us. We are weak. Help us that we would glorify you with our things, our possessions, with everything we say and do. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray all of this. Amen.